The freedom to vote is fundamental to all of our freedoms. Following the 2020 elections in which more Americans voted than ever before in the middle of a public health crisis, we have seen unprecedented attacks on our democracy in states across the country. These strategies in state after state are to make it harder to vote and easier to cheat. Well, I'll tell you what this bill does that we're talking about today, the Freedom to Vote bill, it makes it easier to vote and harder to cheat. This bill will set a baseline of protections for voters across the country with common sense, proven reforms that have already been successfully implemented in blue and red states across the country. It's about ensuring that these mass efforts at disenfranchisement that that reach their most vivid flowering in the violent attack on our capital don't occur. And that people have the ability to get access to a ballot and to have confidence that their ballot will be counted with integrity. Shame on us if we allow the people's voices to be silenced in this chamber. Voting rights are preservative of all other rights. And right now, the right to vote is under attack our democracy is in a 9-1-1 emergency. We must act now. Americans believe in democracy. The American experiment in democracy is at the heart of our Constitution and the foundation of our nation. To be an American is to be free. We must never allow our republic to be overthrown and replaced with a dictatorship. We must pass the Freedom to Vote Act to protect our democracy. The Freedom to Vote Act is a bill everyone should support. It addresses election integrity and protects voting rights. It allows for voter ID and ensures that every citizen can get an ID. It sets minimum standards for accessibility to the ballot box and requires reliable audits of election results. It protects against election interference and prohibits voter intimidation. It provides money for new and upgraded election equipment and makes it a crime to harass or interfere with election workers. The compromise bill put forward by Senator Joe Manchin is strong on election integrity and it protects voting rights. Both sides, Trump supporters and liberal Democrats, are worried about democracy in America. Republicans are concerned about election integrity, and progressives want to protect voting rights. The Freedom to Vote Act addresses both of these concerns. Everyone should support it. This is Rich Procida, producer of Bible Study for Progressives. I've started a new podcast 
Democracy Under Fire. It's a show that covers the threat to democracy and what people are doing about it. I'm publishing it on this same channel, but you can also watch the video on YouTube. Just go to tinyurl.com backslash democracy under fire video, or just search for democracy under fire. Thank you for listening and for your support. Make sure to subscribe and share our podcast so we can get the word out to save democracy and the world. Please enjoy this episode of Bible Study for Progressives. And remember to tune in for Democracy Under Fire. Welcome to Bible Study for Progressives a show where moderates, liberals, and leftists of all faiths and ideologies come together to discuss scripture, spirituality, and politics. We engage scripture in its historical context, plumb its depths for wisdom and guidance, and apply its lessons to current events and social issues. Whether you're a liberal evangelical, a new age spiritualist, a social justice activist, or a postmodern theologian, there's something in this show for you. Come, be energized in spirit and mind to understand the word and what it means to be a spiritual person in today's world. Welcome to Bible Study, Parody, and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. In this episode, we look at two passages about banquets. One banquet is for the elite of Galilee. The other one is for the common people. Now, banquets are times that we celebrate with abundance, and the two types of abundance are contrasted in these two stories. And sometimes a banquet can have an awkward moment. The first of our passages has this awkward moment, and it brought to mind an awkward time at a banquet from my own life. My wife and I attended a friend's wedding a few years back where we felt a little out of place. When we drove up to the church, the first thing we noticed was that the building was really nice, a brand new church building. But that was the church. Some churches are like that. Not ours, but some. We were driving one of our co-op cars. We are part of a very small co-op and all of our cars have always been third- or fourth-hand cars. These are vehicles that have been someone else's used car, and when they figure that they have used it up, they sell it to someone else with even lower standards, and that person uses it until they don't want it anymore, and then they sell it or give it to us. That's the sort of car we have always had in the co-op. 
The car that we were driving that afternoon to the wedding was a 21-year-old Mitsubishi Galant. That car had seen a lot of action and had a fair amount of scrapes, scratches, and dents. As we were driving that thing into the church parking lot, we noticed that all of the other cars were Mercedes and Beamers. Well, most of them. I think there were a few Bentleys. We were the only junker driving into the lot. So we were feeling a little bit awkward. And then we noticed that it was mandatory valet parking. Well, living in the greater Los Angeles area, we actually had experienced this humiliation before. So it was not entirely new. It had just been a few years. And usually we were able to avoid this sort of thing, but here we were, so we just chuckled and proceeded to drive up to the kiosk where the men were who would park our junky, messy car for us. Well, my wife was driving, and since it had been a while since we'd encountered valet parking, she was sort of out of practice as to what you're supposed to do, and without thinking it through, she rolled down the electric window, which rolled very slowly the way they do in cars that are older than anyone ever expected them to get. And when the window was finally low enough, she turned off the engine, pulled the keys out of the ignition, and handed them to the valet through the open window. The valet, of course, just looked at her with a puzzled look on his face, which prompted us to realize that the whole valet thing doesn't work unless you get out of the car. So we got out of the car, and since he had the keys, and it was drizzling, and that's a key part of the story, it was drizzling, we got our valet ticket and headed into the building, trying to get as far away from our junker as fast as we could, so as not to continue to stick out like a sore thumb to the other guests. We headed in, and we didn't look back. A few hours later, we came out of the building to get our car and go home, Many other guests were leaving at the same time, so we stood in line at the kiosk, and when we finally got to the kiosk, we presented our ticket, expecting everything to go normally, except the fact that they were going to have to go get our junker for us, as if it were not a junker and actually deserved a valet. It would just be another small humiliation, not much, and then we would be out of there, back on our way to our familiar world of downscale living with our commoner friends. But the man at the kiosk couldn't find our keys. He asked us what kind of car it was, and we told him, and then a light bulb went off in his head, and he said, Oh, that car. Oh. And he reached down to a separate place, away from all of the other keys, and retrieved our keys for us and said, It wouldn't start. It turns out that the battery had died. They couldn't start the car, so they had to push it, into a nearby parking space. And since they couldn't start it, the window would not roll up. And since it was drizzling, they put a bag over the window to keep the inside from getting wet, which was thoughtful of them. So we had to stand by our car, which was near the entrance to the building, where all the other guests were coming out, because they had to you know, push it into the closest space possible. And we had to stand by our car with the bag on the window, calling AAA to send a guy out, who of course did not get there until almost all the guests had come out of the building 
and stood there looking at us while the valets retrieved their Beamers and Mercedes and Bentleys, after which they drove past us on their way out of the parking lot. So that's my experience of awkwardness at a banquet. But it pales in comparison to what we're about to read. In our passage for this episode, Herod throws a banquet that's even more exclusive and in which he has an awkward moment that comes out far worse. My name is Bert Newton, and this is episode 35 of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. begin by reading Matthew 14, verses 1 to 12. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard reports about Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead, and for this reason these powers are at work in him. For Herod had arrested John, bound him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been telling him, It is not lawful for you to have her. Though Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because they regarded him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company, and she pleased Herod, so much that he promised on oath to grant her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. The king was grieved, yet out of regard for his oaths, and for the guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in prison. The head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, who brought it to her mother. His disciples came and took the body and buried it, and then they went and told Jesus. Now, the circumstances of John's arrest might feel a little strange to us. Not that Herod would arrest someone for criticizing him, that sounds about right for Herod, but that John criticizes Herod for his marriage. I mean, weren't there bigger fish to fry? Herod was the Roman puppet ruler of Galilee, and like his father and virtually all rulers in antiquity, he was rather brutal. Why didn't John criticize him for something that actually affected the people, instead of just for whom he chose to marry? Well, in fact, John did criticize him for something that affected the people. The marriage of Herod to his brother Philip's wife actually had severe consequences for the people. We know from Josephus that it caused a war. After he began having an affair with his brother's wife, Herod made plans to divorce his first wife, who happened to be the daughter of King Eratos of Nabatea. This first wife learned of his plans to divorce her and fled back to her father. The insult to the honor of this neighboring king sparked a war. And wars are never good for the common people. The whole point of this passage, in fact, seems to be to illustrate the flagrant immorality of the ruling class and the dire consequences of that immorality for others. The aristocrats must indulge their desires of the flesh without a thought as to how their careless behavior affects other people. 
Herod's marriage to his brother Philip's wife was like King David's marriage to Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, which the author of Matthew goes out of his way to highlight in the opening genealogy. David's marriage to Bathsheba began with an affair, or more likely a rape, since Bathsheba probably couldn't refuse the king, and it resulted in the death of Uriah in battle. The marriage of Herod to his brother Philip's wife began with an adulterous affair and resulted in the deaths in war of many people. This passage then goes on to tell us about the birthday party that Herod throws for himself. If you imagine all the wealthy and powerful of Galilee gathered together for an evening of wine and debauchery, then you're getting the point, because that's what the author of Matthew wants us to imagine. He tells us that Herod's daughter danced for them. She dances for the men at the party. This is meant to convey loose sexual morals, the feasting eyes of dirty old men, the male gaze that Jesus taught against in chapter 5 when he said that a man should not look on a woman lustfully. Then Herod makes a careless oath. And again, the reader may recall another of Jesus' teachings in chapter 5, the one against making oaths. This careless oath results in the death of John. Furthermore, we have the grotesque image of his head being presented on a platter to the girl, who then takes it to her mother. The image is grotesque and shocking. These are not well people. But this is how the rich and the powerful party, fleshly indulgence and brutality against the lower classes. The contrast with the next scene is sharp. Let's read Matthew 14, 13 to 21. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. When the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them, and cured their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and the hour is now late. Send the crowds away, that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Jesus said to them, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They replied, We have nothing here but five loaves and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And all ate and were filled. And they took up what was left over of the broken pieces, twelve baskets full. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. In contrast to Herod's banquet for the Galilean elite, where their immoral, careless, and selfish behavior is on full display, Jesus lays out a banquet for the common people, the poor of Galilee, whose sick he has been healing. The way Jesus breaks and blesses the bread before distributing it to the people foreshadows the Last Supper, where he will bless the bread, break it, and give it to his disciples. The Last Supper will prepare the disciples for his own death. This Eucharistic feeding of the crowds 
occurs in the shadow of John's death. And there are other echoes in this passage. Just as the return from Egypt scene in chapter 2, the 40-day fast in chapter 4, and the giving of a second law in chapters 5 through 7 portrayed Jesus as a second Moses, this scene of Jesus enacting a wilderness feeding also evokes Moses' imagery, the imagery of the manna in the wilderness to feed the people. But as with many other aspects of this story, this passage draws on more than one figure or text of Israel's past. This scene also has strong echoes of Elisha. 2 Kings 4, 42-44 reads, Now a man came from Baal Shalisha and brought the man of God bread of the first fruits, twenty loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, Give them to the people that they may eat. His attendant said, What, will I set this before a hundred men? And he said, Give them to the people that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, They shall eat and have some left over. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left over, according to the word of the Lord. The similarities are striking. Loaves of bread plus another food item multiply for the crowd, numbered by the men in it, and they have some left over. The significance of the Elisha imagery might escape us if we don't remember that Jesus, in chapter 11, said that John the Baptist was the Elijah that was to come. Elisha was Elijah's protege and took over after Elijah was taken up into heaven in a whirlwind. Similarly, Jesus was baptized by John and in that sense was John's protege. And if you remember, Jesus' original message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that message was verbatim the message that John first proclaimed. The author of Matthew, among all the gospel writers, is the only one to make that explicit. So, when Herod, at the beginning of this chapter, fears that John lives on in Jesus, there is, ironically, something right about that fear. The text tells us that John was seized, the word the NRSV translates arrested, and that he was bound. This is the same terminology that will be used of Jesus when he is arrested to be executed. And here, Jesus, for the first time, takes his movement into the desert or the wilderness, the place where John had organized his movement. The spirit of John does seem to live on in Jesus. Another thing that the original audience might have picked up on in this story is that this peasant king has performed a food distribution. Food distributions, especially in times of famine, were something that the ruling class did to gain honor. As I have detailed in past episodes, the ruling class laid a heavy burden of taxes and rents on the peasantry, 
many of whom consequently fell into debt to the ruling class elites when they fell behind on taxes and or rent. The debt payments, often with interest, compounded their hardship. Consequently, the majority of the peasantry lived at or below subsistence level. To make matters worse, the wealthy elites would store food in warehouses, waiting for the market to give them a better price so they could make more profit. This storing of food itself caused food shortages, triggering the rise in prices that the elites wanted. All of this caused constant hardship for the peasantry, who often did not have enough food. In response to this situation, the elites would engage in charity, enacting food distributions. These acts of charity would bring them honor, which, as I have said before, in this honor-shame society, was more valuable than money. It was a diabolical situation in which the peasantry had to show grand appreciation for gifts of food given to them by the very same ruling class that caused the food shortage in the first place. But I think we can think of similar situations in our own times. Modern, large corporations which enrich the proverbial 1%, exploit labor and resources driving down wages and then make major demonstrations of charity for the PR benefit, for the honor. And we aren't even an honor-shame society, so we're told. So that's what was happening. In contrast, Jesus, a peasant, who does not collect rent or taxes, who has taught forgiveness of debts, who has taught people not to store up wealth on earth, this peasant king with no army or office, he enacts a food distribution. Carol Wilson, in her book, I Was Hungry and You Gave Me Food, Pragmatics of Food Access in the Gospel of Matthew, highlights the role of a designated food distributor in ancient first-century Mediterranean cities in times of famine or other food shortages. This person called a Satonis would be an upper-class person with considerable wealth who would use their own financial resources as well as contributions from others to enact a food distribution. She suggests that Jesus is acting as a Satonis. He, without his own wealth, in taking contributions from other peasants, does the work that normally a wealthy Satonis would undertake. The peasants, in this case, don't need the elites to give them food, and they therefore owe no honor to those elites because they have formed their own new society where, as shown by the leftovers, there is abundance for everyone. My name is Bert Newton. The music for this episode has been provided by Bob Nolte and David Martin. Please rate us on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you can in order to draw more people. Five-star ratings help draw more people. You can also, in addition to rating, you can leave a review, uh, which also draws more people and is very helpful to potential listeners. Uh, if you want to make a donation, you can do that through PayPal. Send it to subversivewisdom 
at gmail.com. That's subversivewisdom at gmail.com. You can also just email me questions at that address, subversivewisdom at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. This has been episode 35 of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. This has been Bible Study for Progressives. If you enjoyed the program, please subscribe to our podcast or put us in your favorites and write a five-star review. Tell your friends about us and share us on social media. Follow us on Facebook and click the donate button at modernlectionaries.blogspot.com. Your support will help us reach more people, produce more and better shows, and cover the cost of production. Feel free to send me a note or comment on the show. I would love to hear from you. Until next time, this is Rich Proceda. Thank you for listening.